Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. It's really a joy to be with you. Um, it's a privilege. Um, I really mean that. I love getting to teach you guys most Sundays. I love being with you. Um, I love our church. Like, I was thinking about this this past week. I'm just in, like, a really thankful mood. Um, so let me just kind of ramble about this for a second. Um, like, I really love that our church is so young. Um, like, that's so, like, exciting to me. I know that some of you are older, and don't hear me say that, like, you're unwelcome here. Like, I feel like one of the most joy-giving things to me as one of our pastors is, like, when older people come into the life of our church. But a lot of you are very young, and you've sort of entrusted almost a stage of life to us where you're kind of growing up, and you're figuring out what it means to be an adult and, and what life is really like. And, um, you know, for, for those of you who are going through that, I, I came across a story this past week that really made me think of you guys. Um, it's, a, it's a story about... Um, this guy who was throwing a uh, New Year's Eve party. And so he's throwing a New Year's Eve party, and he sends out uh, RSVPs. And he gets the RSVPs back, and he finds out that there's, like, way more people than he has seating for him. So he has to get more chairs. So he goes online, and he's looking for chairs. I don't know if you know this, but, like, chairs are actually pretty expensive. Like, even the chairs you're sitting in right now, like, cheap plastic chairs are kind of expensive. And he's like, man, I don't want to pay, like, $20 a chair. I'm trying to throw a party, like, not spend a small fortune. I almost spend hundreds of dollars on plastic chairs. And so he does what any of us do in this moment. Like, he continues to scour the Internet to find the perfect deal. Does anybody ever do this? Like, you just go down the black hole of Amazon and Google, and you're just like, I am going to find the deal that nobody else knows about. And you know what? This guy did it. He found five chairs for $8, which is just crazy. It's like the craziest deal ever. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to order. I'll pay for the rush shipping. It doesn't matter because it's so cheap. And New Year's Eve comes, and the, doors are, the, the chairs are sitting at his front door. Uh, there's only one problem. The box they arrive in is, is about the size of a box of cards or a deck of cards. Um, and he's like, well, what the heck is going on? Like, is this, um, like, the receipt? Like, what, what, is, what is in this box? And so he opens it up, and uh, here's what he finds. I feel like only a picture can do this justice. Um, here's what he finds. Now, you need to use, like, the dime for reference. Um, he purchased doll furniture by mistake. And um, that's why he got such a great deal was because uh, he didn't buy actual chairs. He bought doll furniture. Instead, he didn't really read the fine print. And uh, you're like, how the heck does this apply to me? Here, here's what I feel like about this picture. Leave it up for one second and then take it away because everybody else will be distracted, okay? Um, I feel like this picture captures the experience of becoming an adult. And here's what I mean by this, is I think many of us, were kind of born and we're raised and we have this notion that the world is a safe, magical place that has our best interests in mind. And then through experiences like this, where we're kind of perpetually over-promised and under-delivered, that notion is just beaten out of us. Like, it's just being out of you, right? You just have experience after experience where you kind of are underwhelmed and you're overpromised and you're underdelivered. And it might be like you become an adult and you start paying bills for the very first time. And, you know, like when that happens in your life, you're a little bit anxious. You don't really want to spend that money. Uh, but you're a little bit excited as well. It's like, man, I get to hunt for a deal. And I found this company called Comcast. And they're going to give me like 100 gigs of speed for like a dollar a month. It's like amazing that I found this incredible deal. I'm going to be able to watch like Netflix on four different devices at the exact same time. And it won't matter. And it's practical free, and all of a sudden, like, you didn't read the fine print, and the 30-day trial period expires, and all of a sudden, that flips, and you're paying $100 a month for, like, a gig of speed, and you can't even stream a YouTube video anymore, and you're like, what the heck is going on? Or, you know, I feel like this happens with people, not just companies and organizations. I feel like the most kind of easy place to identify is if any of you have been on a first date recently, and, uh, you know, like, unfortunately, people don't come with fine print that you can read, and, um, you know, you're, you're sitting there, and you get to know somebody on a 
first date, and we, we all do this on a first date, where we sort of project this image of ourselves that's probably a little bit better than what really exists in reality, and it's more kind of who we think we are, or who we hope to be, as opposed to who we are in reality, and you get to know that person a little bit better, and then you're like, well, wait a second, like, you kind of over-promise and under-deliver, like, you don't like all these cool, independent bands, like, you're like a Taylor Swift fan. Like, there's nothing wrong with T-Swift, but don't promise, like, you're into, like, the indie music scene, okay? Like, you don't actually go on 20-mile hikes up to the top of mountains. Like, that's stock footage from Google Images, and you're just throwing that on Instagram and trying to portray this image of yourself, like, you're this great outdoorsman. And that's just the, the kind of the flow of life. As we get older, and this notion that the world is a safe, beautiful place with our best interests in mind is being out of us, and we perpetually experience being over-promised and under-delivered, and it's easy to get cynical. And I mean, even, even some of you who have kind of grown up here at the summit, you're like 22 years old, and you've just gotten to the point through those experiences that you're almost like a bitter old man now. Like, somebody comes to you and offers something, and you're like, what's the catch? And what are you going to do to me? And how are you going to kind of, uh, you know, it's just easy for that to be the natural course of what it means to sort of grow up and, and become an adult. Now, here's what I was, I was thinking about. Let me, let me just ask you a question, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Let me ask you this question. Um... Have any of you ever experienced the exact opposite of that? Like, think about this in your life. Have you ever experienced encountering a person where you find that your expectations weren't actually too high, they were actually far too low? Like, have you ever encountered somebody who, like, you didn't have to fight to actually care about you? Like, you actually find out that they care more about you more than you even care about you. Probably for most of you, you haven't had that experience. That's why it's so easy for us to like immediately rattle off 17 examples of being overpromised and underdelivered and disappointed by people. But for those of you who've been fortunate to, to encounter a person like that, what's fascinating about that is that person, the way that person engages you is so countercultural, it's so bizarre, like your life can't help but be transformed by the better, for the better. Now here's why I say all this. What we're going to see as we look at this text we just read is three people that encounter Jesus and they have that very experience. So what we're going to learn about Jesus, we're going to learn about not just Jesus as a man, but Jesus, we believe he's fully man and he's fully God, is that our God in his very nature, he provides that in the way he desires to relate to us. He desires to be that sort of unique uh, person who encounters us and he's actually more after your joy than even you're after your joy. Like, it's hard if you've never had experience like that to even have categories for what that looks like. And here's the really great news is, like, we're actually going to see three people who experience that and how we can consequently experience this and be transformed for the better as well. So we're going to dive into this. I love this story so much, and uh, I hope after we're done with it, you love this story as well. And so we're going to learn just three things about Jesus. We're all about Jesus, and uh, we're going to walk through this story together. The first thing we're going to learn is about Jesus. Like, Jesus is the one who pursues our deepest need. Jesus is the one who pursues our deepest need. Now, look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21 says, and when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, uh, if you remember, Jesus kind of been hopping around the Sea of Galilee. And so he started in Capernaum. That's kind of at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He's hopped east. Uh, he went to the Gerasenes last week. He hops back now to Capernaum. Uh, so he's gone from the Jews to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, back to the Jews this week. 
It says he got there, and a great crowd gathered about him. So you're seeing some of his notoriety start to really take root. Like, he's starting to become a a legitimately influential guy in this region of the world. Uh, And all of a sudden, in verse 22, we see him meet a man named Jairus. Now, we learned learned three important things about Jairus. Uh, The first is this, is he's a man of influence. Look at verse 22. It says, Then came one of the rulers out of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, we, we know he's influential for a couple of reasons. The first is because we get his position. He is a ruler of the synagogue. That means he's a man of great influence, a man of great leadership, a man of great religious devotion. He would have been tremendously moral. But not only that, not only do we get his position and title, but we also get his name. We're given his name. And think about this. In the Bible in particular, but even in our culture, when you know somebody's name, it reflects their significance. So if you're at a party, um, probably most people, even if you've met them before, you, you don't remember their name, right? And we all do this thing where we're like, hey, buddy, um, how's it going, pal? Like, yeah, how's it going, friends? And, uh, but if it's Peyton Manning, you don't encounter him that way. So we get his name, and that's sort of Mark's way of tipping off to us, like, okay, Jairus is a fairly significant guy. Second, we see that his daughter is really sick. It says he was beside the sea and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet. So Jairus falls at Jesus' feet. That's, really, that's a really great reflection of how desperate this man is and what his condition is, that a man of great significance and influence would literally fall at the feet of another. Verse 23, and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And again, like, it's easy to just sort of read these stories and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, somebody was about to die, and then they're brought to back to life. It's like, feel the desperation that a father must feel when their child is on the verge of death. I know probably the majority of you aren't parents, and so maybe it's hard to have, like, gone through an experience like that. My wife and I, we actually went through an experience like this. Our daughter, when she was about eight months old, had pneumonia, uh, where she was checked into a hospital for a week, and we were like, we don't know if she's going to make it. And I just remember that feeling of just... Like, it, it was like a 10,000-pound weight perpetually on my chest until we knew that she was going to be okay. Like, try to imagine what that would be like to have a daughter, especially a daughter, gosh, a daughter who is on the verge of death. And so he comes to Jesus like, you're my only hope to make this better. And third, he's forced, Jairus is forced, to wait for healing. And look at verse 24. It says, and Jairus went with Jesus, and he went with him. So it's really, it's, it's interesting. He went with him. It's, it's easy to sort of overlook the significance of what's going on there. Um, but really, let's take a, a step back. I, I don't know if you remember, for those of you who were with us a couple of years ago, we looked at a story in the Gospel according to John where there's a really similar encounter like this. Uh, the difference is it's a Roman authority, a Roman military authority, and his son is about to die. And I want to just read you how this story unfolds and how it's different. Um, he, the, the official said to him, Sir, this is the official saying this to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So here's what's really fascinating, is that Jesus takes Jairus on a journey with him to go heal Jairus' daughter, but it's not because Jesus doesn't have the capacity or the ability to sort of just go, boom, you're healed from miles away. A story almost exactly like this happened, and Jesus did exactly that. It's like, what the heck is Jesus doing here? See, what's so fascinating about this encounter, what we see emerge is that Jairus believes that his greatest need is sort of the health and the salvation of his daughter. 
But Jesus is like, no, you actually have a deeper need you're not even aware of. Like, your greatest need is not the health of your daughter, even though it's a legitimate need. Your greatest need goes far deeper, and it's actually the salvation and the health of your soul instead. And so come with me. Journey with me. Let's walk on this together. Not because I'm holding out on you. Not because I don't have enough power to help you. Not because I'm cold and callous towards you and indifferent towards you. But no, I am more after your joy than even you're after your joy. I'm after pursuing your deepest and greatest need more than you're even after your own deepest need as well. And this is like a hard, hard truth as you think about, like, let's think about how this even applies to us, what Jesus is saying to Jairus, how he says this to us as well. It made me think a little bit about when I was in high school, um, my sophomore year, so I guess I was around 15-ish, 15, 16, um, I played baseball, and uh, I remember... Um, the two days before the biggest game, we were playing, this, this always sounds like a made-up story, we were playing St. Anne's Belfield, and uh, I was playing wiffle ball with my, my buddies during like a, a free time, and I pulled a muscle in my ab. I, I remember like how much it hurt, and I think to myself, oh my gosh, like my coach is going to kill me, the teammates are going to make fun of me, all this sort of stuff. It's just going to be like absolutely, absolutely terrible. Um, but you know, like I'm young, I, I'll, I'm, I recover quickly, it'll be totally fine. I remember going to practice that that afternoon and telling coach, he was mad at me. I remember telling the players, they made fun of me. I can't even tell you what they said because, like, we're trying to keep this environment appropriate and you know how high school guys can be. And so they're, like, making fun of me, and I'm like, okay, but I'm going to get better. But I didn't get better. Like, the, 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 the next day, uh, I got worse. And, and the day after that, the day of the game, like, I got really, really, really sick. And I still remember even uh, my first class sophomore year was geometry. That's a rough way to start the day. And I'm sitting in there, and it's not just geometry class, but it's, like, so bad. Like, this pain in my side is so bad. Like, I can't sit up straight anymore. And so I check myself out of class. I go to the emergency room. I call my mom, like, you got to get me out of school. I got to go to the emergency room. And uh, I went there kind of thinking, like, you know what my biggest need is? Like, my biggest need is for the doctor to, like, give me this pill or, like, you know, I've heard about this morphine thing. I think I saw that in Saving Private Ryan. Could you give me that? Um, Like, could you just give me something so that this can stop hurting and so that I can go play in this baseball game? Because you don't understand, this is, like, the biggest game of the season. And I can still remember sitting in the emergency room, the doctor asking me what's wrong, me telling him just that, and him laughing in my face. And he, like, puts his hand on my side, and he says, son, like, you, you probably pulled your side um, you probably have a pulled muscle there, but you actually have a much deeper problem that's going on. You actually have appendicitis. I can feel your appendix about to rupture, and you need to get into surgery immediately. I'm not worried about you playing in a baseball game. I'm worried about you living until tomorrow. Like, oh, okay. And as I reflect on that, and as I reflect on this story, it's like, that is my entire life as it pertains to my deepest problems in a nutshell. Like, you and I, we have the propensity to misdiagnose even what we think our deepest problems are. And even think about this in your own life. I feel like what this is so easy for us to see is in stories like that, in hindsight, where we can be like, oh my gosh, look how stupid I was. Again, the easiest place to always pinpoint this is as it pertains to dating. Um, you know, it's like funny, like when you want to be with somebody, um, how like even a lot of you in this room, there's moments in your life in the past where you weren't even particularly religious, but you got like uber religious as it pertained to like you getting with that person, right? You can remember this, like, you, you don't even believe in God, but you're like, God, like Jesus, Allah, a Jewish God, like whoever's up there. Like, if I could just be with this girl, if I could just be with this guy, I, I won't ask for anything else. I'll go to church. I'll do whatever. Like, th- this person, in this person. Some of you prayed this prayer in middle school. This is the easiest place to think about it. With this person, every, like the, the deepest cravings of my soul will be satisfied. 
And, uh, you know, you dated and it didn't work out or that person didn't like you back or they didn't, you know, respond to your friend request or whatever it might have been. It kind of matters when you were going through the whole dating uh, process. Um, But now, like in hindsight, you can look back and you can just be like, man, like God's mercy, God's grace was upon me that like I did not ever date that person. You see what's going on in their lives now? You kind of like stalk them on Facebook. We all do it. It's okay. And you're like, man, thanks be to God. They're like, I am not with this person. Thanks be to God, I didn't have kids with this person. Thanks be to God, I didn't grow old with this person. I was such an idiot. Like, I didn't even know what I wanted in that moment. It's like, we all have stories like that of our past. But it's so hard to believe that in the present, isn't it? Like, it's impossible to believe that in the present. Like, many of you have serious things that you're working through right now, and you just sort of take the assumption of, like, God doesn't care, or he doesn't have the power, or he's not involved, if you're working through that right now, and I think we all are. I was trying to preach this to myself even this week. It's like, I would let your past ignorance, our past ignorance, stir up some humility. I would let Jesus' encounter with Jairus, where he fights for Jairus' deepest need, even when Jairus won't, stir within you hope. And I would let that become a lens through which you interpret your deepest problems in this moment. Like, God is not holding out on you. He's not cold, calloused, indifferent, He's not impotent. He doesn't lack the power to to redeem whatever it is that you're going through. But he loves you more than you even love you. He will fight for your deepest need even when you won't fight for your deepest need. And I've even this week, like, been trying to tell that to myself. And there's, like, eight things right now in my life. Like, I think about them when I'm going to sleep, and I'm like, I wish this were different, and this were different, and this were different. If God really cared, it wouldn't be this way, and this would be fixed immediately. And even this past week, I've been, like, taking this passage and feeding it into my soul to be like, Man, like maybe it's still that way because my greatest need, like pursuing my greatest well-being is not everything like going exactly the way I want it to go. Like maybe there's something deeper here I can't see. And maybe I can have a faith and confidence that like that is the degree to which Jesus loves me and will fight for me, even when I won't fight for him. Now, if that weren't good enough news, it's amazing what happens next. This next person encounters Jesus and we see that Jesus is the one who fights for an authentic relationship. Jesus is the one who fights for an authentic relationship. And so Jesus takes Jairus on this journey. The crowd is pressing in around them. You see this, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes this very unexpected pit stop. It would have been a very painful pit stop for Jairus, right? Because you're thinking like, man, we got to get there as quickly as possible. And Jesus stops. And he encounters this anonymous woman that we don't even know her name. And just like we learned three things about Jairus, we learned three things about her as well. The first is, uh, she suffered greatly. Look at verse 25. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but, grew, uh, but rather grew worse. I mean, so this is a terrible condition to have. I mean, some of you have struggled with a chronic illness, and, or you know somebody who has. And like 12 years with the same illness is a terrible way to live. I mean, 12 years is a really, really long time. Like 12 years ago, we were still four years away from the very first iPhone. We just came out with the iPhone 6S this past week. Like, that's a long time. 12 years is a long time to struggle with the same ailment. But not only that, like, not only does she suffer from her sickness, she suffers in her attempts to get well as well. And for those of you who've struggled with chronic illness, you know how this goes. It says, verse 26, she suffered much under many physicians, so doctors are taking advantage of her. She also spent all that she had, so she spent a a small fortune trying to get better, and she grew no better, 
but rather grew worse. So, I mean, this is a terrible condition for this woman to be in. The second thing we learn about her is she's non-urgent, insignificant, and unclean in the eyes of her culture. So she's non-urgent in that she's had the same condition for 12 years, right? So like compared to a little girl of a significant leader who's about to die, this is not an urgent issue. Uh, She's insignificant because she's a woman and kind of an anonymous woman in a heavily patriarchal culture, as well as she's unclean. The the Jewish law of the day specified that a woman with this exact condition was not supposed to be encountering men, particularly in public, particularly religious leaders like Jesus. So she's exactly the type of person that everybody would expect Jesus to ignore in favor of an influential leader, leaders, uh, his daughter about to die. The third thing we learned about her is she's looking for a celebrity encounter with Jesus, a celebrity encounter with Jesus. I, I couldn't really think of a better way to picture this, but this is really the way you see this. Look at verse 27. It says, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And you see in that statement kind of the degree to which she has a little bit of a misunderstanding of Jesus. It's, it's like, I don't know if you've ever encountered somebody famous before, but this is kind of how it goes with a celebrity, right? If I could just get like a fleeting moment of interaction, like I got to say something, I got to have a selfie, I got to shake his hand, I got to be able to just say something really quick, could you just hold my baby real quick, could we just take a picture, just sort of this fleeting encounter of a little bit of blessing, and then I'll be about my way. That's what, that's what this woman is expecting. That's what she's hoping for. And Jesus won't, he won't settle for that. She's like, I just want a fleeting moment of a celebrity encounter blessing from you. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to fight for you and get to know you and chase through the crowd for you because I demand more than that. I demand an authentic relationship with you. Now, before we see this kind of in the story, again, this is where you just can't breeze through the Bible. Think about how unusual this is. Um, think about... If you have had this experience, or trying to imagine what this experience would be like, um, what you would sort of expect a celebrity to do when you pursue them for a fleeting moment like that. Um, for me, I haven't met very many famous people. I think I shared this before because I only have a limited number of stories of encounters with famous people. Um, but like living in Denver, you, you see kind of famous people walk around every once in a while. And I remember I was working out of a coffee shop in, uh, in downtown um, I'm going to say it's Starbucks. I'm sorry. Um, You know, like, I know it's not cool and independent. It's Starbucks, okay? It just, yeah. Um, Anyways, so I'm working at Starbucks in the middle of downtown. I know. Don't let that affect the rest of what you think about me. Um, So I'm in Starbucks in downtown, and uh, Mark McGuire walks into the Starbucks that I'm working out of in downtown. Now, um, a lot of you don't know who Mark McGuire is. When I was kind of a child of the 90s, um, Mark McGuire was a baseball god. He was not like a baseball god. He was a baseball god. And I would like cut out articles about him from my local newspaper and put them on bulletin boards in my room. I had his poster literally hanging over my bed uh, of Mark McGuire. And, um, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm working and Mark McGuire walks in and I'm like, here's the man who like watched over me as I slept as a small child. <laughs> Like, I've got to say something to this guy. I'll never forgive myself if I don't say something to Mark McGuire. And so, um, and so I, uh, you know, I'm super awkward. Um, I, yeah. And I start packing up my stuff. Like, I, I've only been working there for like 15 minutes, but I'm like, well, time to pack up my stuff and pretend like I'm leaving. So I pack up my stuff and start pretending like I'm leaving, and I take like the most awkward route out of, uh, out of the Starbucks. 
And uh, he's on his computer and listening to his earbuds and working on something. And I just say to him, hey, um, Mr. McGuire, I don't want to bother you whatsoever, but um, I just grew up. I'm like a huge fan. I just want to shake your hand. Like, I grew up being a huge fan of yours, and I remember watching you when you were trying to break the home run record, and I'm just like a, a huge, huge fan of yours. And you know how he responded to me? He shut his computer. He took out his earbuds. And he said, man, I don't want to shake your hand. I want to give you a hug. And he, like, gave me a hug. He's like, you want a picture? And I was like, I would love a picture. And so he was like, okay, like, let's do a selfie. He's doing selfies. And, like, and he was like, you want to grab breakfast? And I was like, I would love to grab breakfast. He's like, man, there's this place called Syrup, like right around the corner. And I don't even know Syrup. It's fantastic. It's real great. You want to go get pancakes? I would love to grab pancakes. And we went and we grabbed pancakes, and it was the best day I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> none of that happens, <laughs> right? And like for most of you, you're like, none of that happens. Like why are you assuming that none of that happens? Because, you know, that's not how it goes with a celebrity, right? Let, let me tell you how it happened. I said the exact same thing. I'm a huge fan. Can I just shake your hand? And he kind of, like, took one earbud out and, like, was like, who are you? And he kind of extended his hand, and he was like, oh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. And we shook hands. And then I went out of the Starbucks like an excited schoolgirl. Like, I'm never washing this hand again, and I'm super excited. But that was, like, that was sort of the extent of the encounter. And that's what we would all expect because that's, that's what a celebrity wants, right? Like, maybe a fleeting encounter of blessing. But not with Jesus. Like, Jesus does the exact opposite. This woman just wants a fleeting, she just wants a selfie. She just wants to touch him. Touch him, make it better, and then I'll be about my way, and I won't bother you. And Jesus is like, wait, you get back here. I'm going to chase you down. I'm going to fight through the crowds for you, and I'm going to get to know you. Because what I want is more than a fleeting encounter. I want an eternally lasting relationship with you. And look at this. Like, look at how this unfolds, and look at how surprising this is. You just sort of expect that this would happen. It says, the flow of blood dried up. So immediately she's healed. Jesus perceives that power goes out of him. We'll come back to that here in a second because it's an unusual little verse, but it's really significant. And Jesus says, who touched me? The disciples are like, well, man, like you're surrounded by a crowd. Of course people are touching you. Jesus is always smarter than the disciples. He's always smarter than us. Verse 32, he looks around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing that it happened, what, had happened to her, uh, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Because she's sort of knowing, like, I'm culturally unclean. I'm insignificant. You're on your way to go heal somebody. You're going to condemn me. Like, this is not going to go well for me. And Jesus, he responds, not with condemnation, but rather comfort. And look at what he says. He says to her, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Like, let this be one of those moments where a vivid image in the Bible, like, spills into the welfare of your soul. This image of a woman, like, just getting a little bit of Jesus and, like, going about her way, and then Jesus is, like, pushing through the crowds to, like, get this woman back to himself. It's like this unbelievably beautiful image that reflects like the degree to which Jesus is better than we could have ever expected. Because I mean, think about the way that we would encounter somebody significant. I mean, we would be pleased with somebody significant being like, yeah, I'll take a picture with you. Like we would even be like, you know what we would really be blown away by? Is if somebody significant is like, man, anytime you need anything, you come to me and I'll help you. And like, man, you're never an intrusion. Just know that. But, like, that's not the picture of Jesus in this scene. Like, he's even more than this kind benefactor who's like, anytime you need anything, man, my power is accessible to you. It's like, no, I'm going to chase you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to work my way through the crowds for you. That's the degree to which I love you. 
And even like, again, verse 30 is really significant because Jesus is saying like, I'm going to fight through the crowds for you. Not just that, but like, even if it means at great expense to myself. In verse 30, when it says, Jesus perceiving in himself the power had gone out of him. Now, it seems unusual, like, what exactly is it that's going on there? But it's interesting. This is why we teach the books of the Bible, so you can see what Mark is doing. Like, every single time that Jesus gives life to somebody else, we've seen that it comes at some sort of expense to himself. Like, every time Jesus gives life to another, it means, like, a small little step towards his death. And it's Mark. He's sort of saying, like, he's giving shadows of the cross that's to come, that ultimately the great exchange of the gospel is that we will be forgiven of sin, and we will be freed from the penalty of death, and we will be given life. But it's not free. It comes at tremendous expense to Jesus. And he will pursue this good for us, but it comes at the greatest expense, him dying on a cross for our sins and resurrecting victorious three days later. See, that's the degree to which God will pursue us. That's, he doesn't just stand far off. If you ever need anything, just let me know. It's like, no. Like, the story of the men and women who fill this room. And I don't care if you grew up in a religious environment. I don't care. I don't care what your story is. Our collective stories who fill this room right now is not like, you know what, I just woke up one day and I decided to be religious. No, like, man, for a lot of us, Jesus was our absolute last resort. A lot of us, a lot of you, not me, but a lot of you grew up in religious environments where you were like, I want nothing to do with the faith that was imposed upon me by my parents, and yet you're here. And why are you here? Because you kind of through your own willpower and intuition were like, work through. It's like, no. It's like the story of Jesus in your life is him fighting through the crowds, the crowds of your sin, the crowds of people sinning against you, the crowds of your busyness, the crowds of you being noncommittal, the crowds of you, whatever it might be, and in me as well, to win us back to himself at great expense to himself because that is the degree to which he is better than anybody else of influence in this entire universe. Now, here's what's astounding, is it gets even better. Isn't that amazing? Like, it gets even better. And look at how this story concludes. It is, man, it's beautiful. Okay. We see that third and finally, Jesus is the one who's victorious over our greatest enemy. Jesus is the one who's victorious over our greatest enemy. And look what happens. It says, while he was speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? And so it's almost like Jairus' worst fears have been realized, right? Like, Jesus, we got to get along. My daughter's about to die. And then somebody comes and confirms those fears and says, your daughter's died. It's interesting, actually, in verse 35, when it says, why trouble the teacher any further? Um, kind of the way that's worded, it's hard to kind of capture the fullness of it. It's almost like a rebuke of Jairus from his other sort of religious friends. Like, man, come on. Like, the child mortality rates are pretty high. We don't have advanced medicine. This is sort of a normal flow of life. You just need to go along with it. Don't bother this guy. He can't really do anything about it anyways. And what's interesting, if you look at verse 36, you see when it says, but overhearing what they said, it's interesting. It's almost like kind of they are having this conversation at that corner of the room, and Jesus is, like, over here, and they're kind of whispering, and they're thinking, like, oh, like, Jesus won't hear this, but little do they know that Jesus is God, so, like, Whispering is not too much for him to overcome. Um, and so, he, he, so overhearing them, he said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Scholars actually believe that these were probably professional mourners. That was a normal thing in this culture where almost like these professional mourners, you had to pay them, were almost like ready to go, right? This daughter's going to die, and then we'll I'll put on this kind of big production, almost like actors mourning and weeping. And Jesus is like, what the heck are you doing? Uh, in verse 29, he says, he entered, and he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child, went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi. Uh, that sounds different because it's Aramaic. It's a language that Jesus would have spoken. So Mark doesn't translate it. He just sort of explains it. He says, um, Talitha kumi, and he says, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And they told them to give her something to eat. Now, I want to, that's a lot, right? So I want to draw your attention to two things that Jesus says in all of this. Um, the first is in verse 39, where Jesus says to them, the child is not dead but sleeping. The second is what he says to the little girl, uh, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Hold those two different sayings in your mind as we try to unpack, like, what is it that Jesus is doing? What is the point that Mark is trying to make? See, what's amazing about the way, this is, again, this is why I love teaching through books of the Bible, and I feel like you should be involved in a church that teaches through books of the Bible, is because you see kind of the larger way almost an artist is crafting their piece. Um, Mark, kind of up to this point, he's almost like a composer guiding a symphony so that it crescendos at the right point. And if you remember, like what we've looked at since we kind of jumped back into the series, is like Jesus almost taking on the greatest enemies of humanity. And it's kind of been the question of like, surely he can't take on that. Oh, he did. Wow, that's amazing. And so if you remember like a few weeks ago, it's like Jesus takes on a storm. And so it's like, well, surely he can't take on the challenges of nature. Oh my gosh, like he can, he is victorious over the storm of his life. And then you see after that, it's like Jesus takes on a demon-possessed man. Well, surely he's not like more powerful than the demons. Oh, oh, he, he is like thousands of them. And then you see, like, earlier in this story, it's like, well, surely he's not over, like, a physical ailment. Surely he can't, like, overcome that. Oh, my gosh. Like, he just, like, in an instant, he just, like, inadvertently healed a woman of a disease that she had for 12 years. But then comes the crescendo. Right? You see what Mark is doing? Well, really, Jesus is the one doing this. Is everybody saying, like, okay, well, you can take on the storms, and you can take on Satan, and you can take on disease. Man, you can't take on death. Like, nobody has an answer for death. I mean, even for us in this room, I mean, we're like crazy more scientifically and medicinally advanced in this culture a couple thousand years ago, but we still got no answer for death. In fact, Steve Jobs, I don't know if you've ever seen him say this. I mean, Steve Jobs was one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. He might have been the greatest innovator of the last 100 years or so. Steve Jobs famously said, no one wants to die, and yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. I mean, even the man who prided himself on like no problems too big, looks at the problem of death and is like, I got nothing for this. And you know what Jesus is proclaiming in the moment that he says, like she's not dead, she's sleeping. You know what Jesus is proclaiming in the moment where he says to this little girl, Talitha Kumi, which again, like it's hard to really capture the fullness of that. Like uh, that saying is, it's more, it's not just like wake up. It's like, it's like what I say to my daughter when she slept too long for her afternoon nap. It's like, like it literally translated would be almost be like little lamb. It's like an affectionate sort of pet name, like sweetheart, like little lamb. It's time to get up. Like we got to get on with our day. You know what Jesus is proclaiming when he says that? Is that when we have Jesus by the hand, really when Jesus has us by the hand, 
the greatest enemy of humanity called death is nothing more than a good night's sleep. And when Jesus has us by the hand, this great enemy of humanity that the most brilliant minds of the most technologically progressive culture in all of world history that has no answer for it, that that is not the end. The death is not the end, but rather that Jesus is victorious over death. And as a consequence, it is not the end, but rather an ushering into the life that is truly life. And what happens at the end of the story then is this beautiful picture of Jesus is painted that we have to consequently respond to. It's like, I get it. It's like, and we grow up and life beats the crap out of us, and people disappoint us, and, and even the people that are closest to us a lot of times, it's like, man, if I, I thought I could count on everybody. I, I thought I could at least count on you. Like, I, le- I thought I could at least depend on you. And some of you have been stabbed in the back through people like that. And it hurts, and it's easy to grow cold and cynical and calloused. But let the love of Jesus break into that heart. And let him, like what he's portraying here, that like, He's the one who loves you so much that he'll fight for your deepest need even when you won't fight for your deepest need. Like, he's the one who wants more than a fleeting encounter with you. He wants an eternally lasting relationship with you. That he's the one who's not, like, he doesn't get to death and he's like, man, I don't know what to do about this. Sorry, good luck. He's like, no, I'll go to the cross for you. I'll take on what caused death for you. I'll die for you and I'll resurrect for you. And I'll be victorious over the greatest enemy of humanity called death. And by grace through faith, my victory becomes yours as well. Like, let that picture of who Jesus is and what he desires to be to you break into your heart and change you and transform you for the better. We're going to respond to that. Let me pray, and then we'll kind of give some next steps in terms of, like, how is it that we respond? God, we thank you so much for this beautiful portrayal of who Jesus is and the way that in a culture that's, not, that's very similar to our own where everybody kind of anticipated disappointment, anticipated being let down, anticipated being overpromised and underdelivered, that you in an unbelievable, un, kind of like unpredictable and like unexpected fashion, you loved people so much that you, like, you give us what we really need. Like, what love is that? In a culture where everybody is fighting to kind of have their way and to win, that you would come here not to be served, but to serve. And not just in some sort of, like, metaphorical way, in a literal way that would mean that ultimately you dine in the place of those who have wronged you. And so I pray, like, I pray in particular for men and women here who are kind of sarcastic, callous, cynical, and believe everybody's out to get them. I pray for men and women who just believe, who have been wrong so many times, it's just sort of easy to believe that's the way it's going to be for the rest of my life. I pray for men and women who live incredibly isolated lifestyles because it's like, I can't trust anybody. And I would let, pray that you would let this revelation of who Jesus is break down the walls and stir up a trust to say like this encounter this encounter no matter what I've experienced can transform me for the better 
God, please do that in the lives of men and women. Please do that in the life of me. Um, Please do that in the life of me. We just ask these things in your name. Amen.